This week, I'm talking with AJ Pangarkar in Canada. AJ is author of a very interesting book called The Trainer's Balanced Scorecard, a complete resource for linking learning and growth to organizational strategy. AJ is also a certified training and development professional like me. He's a fellow of the CPA or Chartered Professional Accountants body. And this is interesting, actually, as a combination because he doesn't just have a training mindset. His accountancy background gives him a numbers mindset and a business mindset. So in today's episode, together, we're going to give you five ways to get customers to buy into your training. And those steps today are to be innovative, to provide proof, to align with business challenges, to offer assurances, and to give quick buying options. We'll explain all those and more in today's episode of the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hi, my name is Mark. It's my pleasure, privilege, in fact, to welcome you to another episode of the Training Business Podcast. If you're like me, someone who makes a full-time living from working with people, helping to develop them through training, workshops, programs, online, offline, if you love helping people to be the very best that they can be and you call yourself a facilitator or a trainer or a learning and development consultant, then this is the show for you. And every single Thursday, without fail, there is an episode of the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It's free. So please can I ask you to pause this for a moment and to click on subscribe because it costs nothing, takes a couple of seconds and helps us to bring you value each week. And this is really what the show is all about. It's about sharing the wisdom that guests bring you. And they're delighted, of course, to be guests on the show and to help you with your training business journey, wherever you are on that journey, whether it's setting up your business for the first time or moving to the next stage, maybe scaling or entering some kind of growth phase. And over the years, we've had some very interesting guests on the show, people who are both solopreneurs, people who run their own business of one, also people who've run and maybe sold a training business with multiple people involved. So wherever that is for you, I think you'll find today's episode quite interesting because it's all about finding ways to get customers to buy into your training. So we're thinking of not just the learning and development side of things, but the business impact side of things. And today, AJ and I are going to walk through five tips to help you to get your customers to buy into your training. AJ, hi, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The reason we're talking is I, I came across an article that you wrote on the importance of business leaders buying into our training. So let's imagine we are training practitioners. We're running our own training business. We're uh, talking to clients. We're dealing with, let's say, a company, and we want to ensure that the the customers buy into our training before we actually run it. We're selling it to them. Um, why do you think it's important that we get people to buy into training before it happens? Well, 
<clears throat> we live in an age where knowledge and well, knowledge is king right now. I mean, it's it's you know, it's we've heard the saying people say all the time that knowledge and information is the new currency of business, and and that is very true because if you look at all the major organizations today um, in the world, all of them are basically knowledge based. Uh, from you know the high tech firms that we all know and love <clears throat> are all collecting our knowledge and. And a lot of times we give it away for free, but that's a side note. We let's go back to knowledge and information. Business leaders realize that their success, their competitive success comes through how well they equip the knowledge of their people, because that is probably the most important knowledge within the organization. And because if we can equip them with that knowledge, they can be more creative and more, um, aligned and attuned to what's not only going on within the market space, but also with the company's expectations. And so there's a lot of opportunities here for people within training environments, whether you're a practitioner or you're within a training department, to develop the skill sets of people in a unique and 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 a connected way to the organization's expectations and that's you know at this i can't say enough about how important training is within organizations and and i don't want people to uh, you know take light of it i think the danger is that often we think that um you know there's a training initiative there's some request for uh, a proposal or, or training from a client or a, a prospect and we start thinking about the learning, the, the lesson plan and the objectives, et cetera. What about connecting with the people who own that problem? Because what I'm thinking of today is that we could, for people listening, give them some practical tips on, you know, five ways to get customers to buy into training so they actually want it from us. Well, I may have shared this with you in the past, but um, one thing a mentor once taught me was sell people what they want to buy, not what you want to sell. Now, I hope if anything, anybody leaves from the, the podcast today, they, they remember that phrase because it's an all-powerful phrase that I learned about 30 years ago from my mentor. And basically, if you read into it, it speaks to the need of the people who are trying to solve a problem, not what you're trying to push upon them. And unfortunately, in people in learning, you know, they get accused of being order takers or they feel like they're order takers because people are dictating the learning to them. This is the type of training we need. No, you're the subject experts, but you need to speak to the people who are having the problem and diagnosis. So you're almost like a therapist or you're diagnosing, they're giving you the problem and you're going to have to diagnose whether, first of all, whether training is a fit. Number one, have the courage to step away if it isn't, because it could be a process issue. And if it is, find how you can target and make sure you're addressing the need of that person. Because at the end of the day, if you fulfill their need and you solve their problem, they will come back to you to solve future problems. And you know, to think about it, I mean, you and I would go, you know, when we go to a store to buy something, we buy it to solve something in our lives, whatever that is. And if it doesn't meet our need, we'll take it back, right? Because it didn't meet the need. And so there's, there's nothing different here from me going to a store and buying a product that didn't work or maybe worked too well. Um, either way, I am going to make a decision based on it. And I'll either be very satisfied or I won't. And what you want to be, and I always tell uh, people in, in training, you want to be that operational department's therapist, don't sit at your desk waiting for them to come to you. Get out of your desk in your office and go see them. Even before they have a need, learn about their business, partner up with them and say, look, you know, I'm going to be supporting what your people need to develop to achieve your performance objectives. 
So tell me, what are the performance pain points or the expectations you have to meet? Where do you think your people are lacking? Or maybe you don't know where people are lacking. Maybe I can help you diagnose the future expectations of those people. But those of you listening, I mean, you have so much power in your hand that you're letting people take it away from you. And you need to take back control and become operational active operational partners within the organization. Great. So we're being proactive here. So let's, let's give people tips. So, um, we've got five tips, five ways that people listening can proactively get their customers to buy into the training, their ideas for training, why that training is needed. So, uh, let's list them first of all, and then we'll go into them individually and perhaps give some examples of that in practice. So the first thing is to be innovative. Now you mentioned, being a therapist to, you know, uh, maybe a department, uh, a corporate customer. What does that mean? Be innovative. And why is that important? Okay. Look, so, the, you know, there's like sort of two groups in this, in the training world. There are those external practitioners who come in to get hired from the external. And, and a lot of them are like myself or, and, and that come in and get engaged. And then there's, of course, the corporate training people. Either way, it doesn't matter. The tools and, and the techniques that we possess. Let me restart this phrase, what I'm about to say. 50 years ago, not even 50, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we never had the technology we could have envisioned that we have today. Now, we have everything that we encompass under an umbrella called e-learning. And e-learning as a broad umbrella, I'm not just talking about courses, I'm talking about the tools and technologies that go along with it. Like gamification, for example. Gamification, you know, the LMS is even, the infrastructure behind it. I mean, everything that we have as far as we call the e side of the learning uh, the learning component allows us that innovation because now we don't are we're, we're not restricted to once when i was growing up into the corporate world where i had to actually displace myself to a location wherever that may be into a room and sit there for a quantity of time whether it be a day or five days to listen to somebody to feed knowledge into my head that no longer has to exist i now have technology that i can deploy to allow people to learn anywhere at any time and anything in a very succinct and very applicable fashion. Now, that allows you as a training practitioner to be so creative and innovative with your approach and not be entrenched in the status quo. And so if you, you know, here's, here's a problem, Mark, what I see. You know, that old school of, you know, going to a classroom and sitting in and watching all these uh, instructors teach you. Well, that all they do is replicate that on an e-learning course. And now you're sitting instead of a classroom, you're sitting before a computer for eight hours. That's not innovation. Innovation is how do I deploy that knowledge in a practical way that people can actually take it, apply it, and use it immediately. And for all of you who have been clamoring about having technology and wanting the technology, you have it. Um, you have an opportunity to be creative about things. So the, the very least, we've got Zoom, we've got Teams, we have uh, webinar technology, we've got tools like Mentimeter, we can use Slido. Um, people use Miro, they use Mural for remote collaboration whiteboards. There's so many great things I've seen trainers do. They've, they've used collaborative technology to share their screens and allow people to do the same thing you know, in real time on their screen. You've got synchronous learning, asynchronous learning, blended learning, micro learning. I think the message here is that we have to be innovative. Just turning up with a bunch of slides doesn't cut it anymore. 
people want to see innovation, a new way of approaching things, right, with technology. Yeah, let's be careful here, though, because people will look at the technology and say, that's the solution. You know, I can't look at everything as a nail and just use a hammer to it. You know, I mean, really, I mean, and that's what people are doing with technology. And I'm not just accusing L&D people. I'm talking in all facets of operations. You just don't look at every problem as a nail. The technology is a tool. And you have, a, as you mentioned, a list of tools that are quite extensive out there that that blended and combined can really create some interesting things. But that's not your expertise. Your expertise is to come up with a solution that contributes to the knowledge that moves the organization forward and then bring in the appropriate tools, right? I don't know if you, you've ever built something, Mark, but I, you know, I tend like to work my hands and I don't keep pulling out the hammer to put a screw in the wall. You know what I mean? Like, I right. So we're using right? tools selectively. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And, and use the right ones and use them creatively and, 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 and don't be afraid to, to venture out and do something creative on that because, um, people are expecting something to be done and you need to produce some type of results. So. Right. So as long as the tool is appropriate, so we're not looking to use tools for tools sake, but I think a lot of people have struggled during COVID to stand out from the competition. So one easy way is to be innovative. Think of research that you can uh, integrate into training. Think of new techniques to engage people. Think of tools to your point then, AJ, the right tools for the job. So we're using tools in a way that separates you. And it might be that it's murals your thing or mirrors your thing or some kind of tool is your thing. But we're, innovation for innovation's sake is not necessarily well, the answer. Exactly. Right? And let me just share a, a closing example on this. Do you know how many times I've accessed YouTube just to learn something quickly, to build something? I mean, the, vi- the video is simple, right? And I, what I look for is length, right? If I see somebody joining on for 30 minutes on a video, I'm going to skip to the point where I need, or I'll skip that video and go to the five-minute one that gets to the point. But after the five minutes, I know how to build something. So it doesn't have to be overly fancy and complicated. So, you know, just just be creative and get people to learn and apply. actually more important to learn and apply is the key here. So the key point, I think, before we move off this one is to be innovative not for innovation's sake, but think of ways to get your customers to buy into your training. Highlight how the way you think about things is different. The way you uh, train people is different. Just be innovative in a way that makes you uh, perhaps um, harder to replace. Um, I know that when people have approached me and said, how can I make my training different, uh, You know, more attractive? There are, uh, there are lots of ways, whether it's technology or design, that can highlight um, innovation. Number two is provide proof. Why does that matter to someone who is deciding which training provider to go with proof? This is a challenge for a lot of um, practitioners um, because uh, we live in a world of knowledge and knowledge is very intangible, right? How do you, how do I shove something into your head, Mark, and prove that you actually can use it? I mean, it is, it is, it is a bit of a challenge, right? It's ethereal, but at the end of the day, you have to provide when I say proof, I'm really showing some evidence. And and the way we do this is, um, so when you look at the Kirkpatrick, four levels of Kirkpatrick methodology, right? I like to work it backwards. I work with the end in mind because, you know, at the end of the day, operational people don't care about level one and two. They don't care about the donuts and how much they like what suit you're wearing that day or the coffee or whatever, right? And And nobody cares how much that person, I don't care how much you retain, Mark. What I do care about is what you can apply and how well you can apply it and how regularly you can make it a habit. And then eventually, if you can, if I can make sure I can reinforce that, there's my proof and my evidence, which ultimately, if I make you, let's say, more efficient or more productive and the, and the, and the, the skills that I've put into your head, 
and I, I, I'm able to replicate that and get you to, to make it a regular habit, guess what? It becomes a habit. You become better at what you do. And maybe, you know, and chances are you are probably going to make a difference in the organization, which is a level four, right? So at the end of the day, I work backwards that day. What is the, first you diagnose the problem and then you deconstruct it from there and say, okay, what does, what does, what does AJ or Mark need to become better and what they need to do? What are they lacking and what are they going to need to become better? And so all these elements that give me the results. Now that's my evidence and my proof where I can say, hey, training did make a difference. However, let's be cautious here because, <clears throat> and I say this with great affection, and I hope your listeners don't get upset with me here, but practitioners are so eager to look for credit. They're like the three-year-old looking to their parents to get the gold star. And we have to remember an organization is not one component that creates a solution. There are multifaceted elements that happen in an organization. So you might, your learning might be good and you might be able to get me or Mark to apply stuff. However, there might be process issues that are beyond your control that are impeding it. So you have to understand that in organization, the word organization is a multitude of parts that come together to achieve something greater. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're not impeding, like we're working together and not taking sole credit for something if it goes well, because other elements are in play to help us make it go well. Because if that happens, if you want to take all credit, it goes well, you're going to have to take all the credit when it goes south. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think. I, I think that when, when you talk about providing proof to get business leaders to buy into your learning, you're proving that you've helped people like them before, people in their situation with those problems, and you're showing how... This is innovative to point one, but it's also been tested and proven um, because people often are reluctant to buy training where they don't feel it can be linked to a solution. And, and particularly if it's not helped someone, if we can prove that this works, it gets results. That often is something which, you know, creates problems. How do I know it works before I buy it? You're absolutely right. I mean, people want evidence. This is why we see testimonials and when we buy products and services, and, and that's fair enough. But what I caution people here is that the proof is great and to show your past success, you know, those saying, right, Mark, you're only as good as your last success. And that's in the past and now you have to prove it again. So here's, you're showing past evidence that you've done well, but you, I always caution the people who are bringing me on for whatever reason, I, I'll show them all the proof they want and how good I am. However, I do caution them, say like this, it can be different for you. And then I'm not going to cookie cutter it. I'm not going to copy and paste what I've done in the past because your problems are unique. Your issues are unique. And we have to create an innovative process. We need to create something that fits the organization. And, and here, and I'm going to tie in and we're going to talk about this in point three. I'm going to tie in into metrics that will give you that proof and evidence. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the number three point or p point number three, which is um, one of the ways to get customers to buy into our training proposals is to align with their business challenges. What does that mean? Well, it goes back to my therapist thing, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we 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 have to uh, an organization. So let's let's use a I don't know. I'm, I I tend to always use the example of sales, but let's go to let's go to production. I think production might be better. So let's use a simple example where a company has, uh, say, a certain level of defect rates in their production. And, and all companies have that. They have a certain percentage of defects that are going to happen within the production and manufacturing. 
Now, maybe they come back to, they come back to the, the production department and say, Hey, you know, that's the challenge here is that we want to reduce the defect rate from say 10% to 5% in the next six months. Well, there's your business challenge, right? If I'm, if, if the, that's the training department, if, if the training is called into the meeting and training is not the only one called into the meeting, but if training is called into that cross-functional meeting, I'm going to be asking questions around, okay, you, we need to reduce the defect rates by half. Why are the defects rate? Why are defects rates at ten percent right now? You know what? What is causing some of those defects in the past? Is it a process issue? And I'm asking a bunch of operational questions to diagnose where my training fits in. To eventually, I might discover. I don't know. For example, they bought a new machine that's not been calibrated properly, so that's a process issue. Or they bought a new machine, but the people weren't trained adequately on it. So I need to step in again and and build those skills. So. I'm helping to align with their needs and their business challenges. Now, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? You know, it's, it sounds like something we should all be doing. And often we're afraid to uh, question people who come to us with a training request. We're, we're afraid to, to, to question too deeply in case uh, they can't provide us with answers. But who's a subject expert? Right. You, you know, if they're coming to you and they're telling you what training they need, we have an issue because I would turn back to them and say, I hate to be rude, but you're not the subject expert here. I am. And you can't diagnose a training issue without having me diagnose it first. But we're aligning with those, those challenges. That's, I think that's the key point here, isn't it? That we're, we're, we're at least showing curiosity. I can deliver training, but where does this fit into the organization? How does this help you achieve those goals? What are those goals? How can we prove that the training that I'm delivering, designing for you and delivering is going to move the needle and, and to, achieve those goals. And you're not the only one moving the needle, right? I mean, like in the example I showed you, there's a process issue in here, right? So there might be a process element that's that's either going to impede or affect or complement what I want to do. And none of them should work in, the, um, in isolation, right? They, they should be working together. I should be working with the process people to say, okay, you're bringing a new piece of equipment. Okay, here's, here's a diagnosis we did on a needs assessment, and here's what's missing here. How do we bring these two together? You know, so the challenges are very important to understand clearly so you are able to diagnose what needs to be done, which allows you to provide proof because now the metric is set up, right? They have to decrease defects by half in the next six months. Well, there's your metric. If you move that needle, let's say training just moves that needle, let's say not by, this doesn't come down from 10% to 5%. Let's say they just come down from 10% to 8% or 9%. If you quantify that 1% savings in defects, it's probably in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, for an organization. I mean, that impact alone will make you look like a hero. So it, it, the challenge is there. You can find a proof to prove, the, I, you know, it's like when I was in school, if the teacher gave me all the answers to the test ahead of time and I only had, I wasn't given the questions. I just need to know what questions to ask because all the answers are being given to me. So it sounds to me like what we're saying here in point number three is that you have to consult. You have to be a consultant, not just a solution provider. You've got to be curious about how your client's business works. Uh, we're not saying you become an expert in their business, but you're showing curiosity and asking questions which show that you're concerned or at least interested in where this training fits into their business and how it supports their business. What about number four, offer assurances? I'll tell you what I think. When I hear this, um, there's a bit of salesmanship here, but when I think of assurances, in some ways this is reassuring. If I hear someone say, um, if we, if this training does not work for you, 
um, you get your money back or you get something in return or, or we compensate you in a different way. What do you mean by offer assurances? Well, it, it goes back to my store example. I mean, if you bought something in a store that you weren't satisfied with, you'd go back and say, this didn't meet its promise and I want my money back. And I always say to tra- training departments uh, and organizations, especially um, not practitioners, independent practitioners, because they understand this, but I speak to training department leaders and I say to them, I said, You're the, these operation departments are technically paying for the training that you're offering them. They're the ones who are giving their money out of their budget to you to deliver a service you're supposed to give to them. So do they not have a right to come back to you that, uh, to say they weren't satisfied if something didn't work? Because, you know, Mark, we hear it all the time, right? We hear, you know, I used to have employees in a, in a company I used to work for. I used to have a staff who used to come back and say to me, yeah, I went to training, but I don't know what the big deal was, but it was a nice little five days off work, right? You know, you know, I, and I didn't see any application. And I would go back to the HR people at that time and say, I just spent how much money on training my employees and they're not using one skill that you taught them? Like, what's the deal here? So at the end of the day, I need to know when I offer solution that I can help them move that needle, whatever that measurement, that metric is that we talked prior, that, hey, how about we target this performance objective? And here's how we fit in. And if we can move it by this amount, what would that do for you to move that forward? And what happens if we don't move it by, by that needle? What, what assurances can we offer, should we offer to get our customers to buy into that training? Well, then, you know, we have to go back and say, and, and be accountable. At the end of the day, we have to say to ourselves, well, maybe we didn't diagnose something adequately and let's revisit it, right? Let's go back because it's, you know, they're not going to get, you're not going to give their money back. But at the end of the day, what you can do. Well, I'll tell you what, I've done that. I, to be honest with you, I've done that before. I've, if someone, someone said to me one time, you know what? It didn't meet our needs. And, um, but the fact that I had offered some kind of guarantee up front actually helped to clinch the business. And I think psychologically, yeah. Well, for, you know, for you and I, I mean, we have the luxury of doing that, but internally, let's say, so as a, as a practitioner, I can see doing that. I mean, I never really did that, but what I've always done is I, I always made sure I guaranteed I solved the problem. If it was, if it, if I was in control of the problem, like if it, it was affecting the, the training side of things. Which kind of goes back to step three, which is if we're aligning with business challenges, we're actually decreasing the likelihood we'll have to, uh, you know, offer that money back. But I think still it's, it's worth reinforcing for listeners that often, and there's a reason in psychology, offering some kind of guarantee or assurances or mitigation gives people who buy training the confidence that if something doesn't work, we're not left, you know, holding the baby. We're not left high and dry. Uh, and I think people have said to me, you know, I, I, that actually gives me more confidence that this is worth selecting you because if it doesn't work, um, you're going to take it seriously and do something about this. Well, there's two things that happen when you do this. One is you offer that reassurance to quote unquote, the buyer, right? The person who's actually taking in the services that you're offering and, and they feel reassured. So number one, but if you do it properly to your point, Mark, you do your diagnosis properly, chances are you're not going to be giving any money back, you know, figuratively, um, to, to the client because you, they're going to be happy. They're going to, you're going to solve their problem in some way. So they're going to be satisfied. Um, the other thing is that at the end of the day, the assurance, um, also ass- provides some confidence from them to you, meaning that you're coming in, that you've, they feel reassured that they're dealing with somebody that knows what they're talking about. 
and 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 you don't want to be the 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 used car salesperson in the plaid jacket, you know, promising everything under the sun. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking a credible assurance that you can fulfill. Right. So, for example, it could be you know, um, we'll we'll run this test, we'll run this test group through the training. Um, if this doesn't work, uh, we'll not charge you for a redesign. We'll work with you until that training uh, meets your objective. Something like that. But before that, Mark, I mean, here's how we guarantee it. I mean, what do we, what do training practitioners are, what are, what are we taught to do? We're taught to do a, a skills or a needs assessment ahead of time. Right. Yeah. And then analysis. Yeah. That's the diagnostic, diagnostic process. And if you do it properly, you'll be able to find the gaps. And when you find those gaps, guess what? You're, you're given the answers. You just need to fill a solution that fulfills that. And even if you fill half of it, they'll be happy. And I'm not saying to fill, don't fill 100%. I'm just saying that you have to show some reassurance and guarantees at the end of it of what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, if you want to build, it's about building credibility. It is. And, and particularly when we think of the title of today's episode, which is ways to get customers to buy into the training. So it may be that it's a new relationship. Um, how do we stand out from the competition? Well, number one, we said is to be innovative. Think of ways you can approach training differently, stand out from the competition it could be based upon research, new technology to provide proof. It's worked for other people. Here's what I've done. Here are the metrics of the numbers. Testimonials. Number three, aligning with business challenges, diagnosing properly. Number four, offering assurances. And, and, and you made this point when we first talked, and I, I think that's really important. Um, what gives me the confidence that I'm dealing with people who are so confident they're willing to um, offer assurances if training doesn't work. And there's always a risk, of course, in, in training that something doesn't work properly. Um, which leads us to number five, which is to give quick buying options. And this sounds quite salesy, but I think I know where you're going with this. What does that mean? Give quick buying options. Oh, well, I'm anxious to hear where you, what you think of it too, Mark. But me, so, you know, I've, I come, I come from an industrial sales background. My, my first background is in engineering and I went into work for a major multinational in um, industrial sales. And that's where my mentor I met with that, that phrase I told you at, earlier in the podcast. But you don't, you can't give them, when you give people too many choices, they get overwhelmed. Number one. And number two, if you overcomplicate the choices, they'll not make, they won't make a choice. And I don't need, let's not, let's get out of our bubble here about the, 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 the company and, uh, you know, internal departments. So let's work as a people, right? You and I and people listening have been presented with options and then have gotten, you know, subconsciously frightened from it and then walked away and hesitated or n- never made a decision because either it was too complicated to make and they didn't want to wrap their mind around it. It took too much work and you don't want to give them too much work to think about. And the second, there were too many choices, too many options. Now, the first one, the overcomplicating things we can solve. You simplify things. You don't talk down to people. You simplify them and you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't make things more than they have to be. Now, let me finish with that concept because think about people that you've dealt with who would take something very complex and explain it to you in a very simple fashion. And you say to her, wow, okay, now I understand it, right? If they can do that in a very short, concise fashion, then you, you're amazed because now you understand the complex. Somebody explained me Einstein's theory of relativity once because I, I sort of knew what it was, but I didn't know what it was. And a, a friend of mine who was in physics said, this is what it is. And I said, oh, Okay. It's simple. And it, okay. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a theoretical physicist anymore, any more than, you know, <laughs> from that explanation. But what it did show me that it showed me that I can understand something very simply. 
But the second point is too many choices. Right. So giving bu- quick buying options, I'll tell you what I think that means, at least to me, is that make it easy for people to say yes to something small. So when we design programs, and there are many parts to it, there could be some kind of pre-work, and there could be some kind of diagnostic tool, there could be some, some kind of test group, and then some initial cohort, and then we have the rollout, and then we've got some kind of perhaps progress report halfway through. A lot of that sounds complex to people, um, particularly from an operational perspective. So why not just make it easy for people to say yes to you? So if we think of it in psychology, in, in the, in Cialdini's work, we have from that fantastic book, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. Robert Cialdini talks about the principle of, of commitment. When we make it easy for people to say yes to small things, they're more likely to say yes to bigger things afterwards. So we're trying to mitigate risk in the buyer's mind. So this is why number four makes perfect sense. We're offering assurances, which makes it, which calms down in people's minds that, that, um, that reluctance to buy in case they think, oh, it's too much money here and I'm not sure if it'll work and how do I know it'll work by making it easy to say yes to something small. So what I think if you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, what is something small that someone could say yes to? It could be, let's say, let's try this with a cohort of five people and get some feedback and then uh, let's see if we can sell this. Something else that that I'm not sure what you think of this, but someone said to me, um, they think of selling some kind of initial um, consultation day, and that way they get the stakeholders involved in what the training is, and they sell that first of all. And if that goes well, then they sell the bigger piece of the training. So, what what else do you think comes to mind when it comes to giving, you know, customers quick buying options so they buy into at least a small or initial part of our training? Well, the quick buying options is this: you want to take the risk away. Uh, from the decision. It really is what it is. Because um, when you give them too much choices, they, they don't know what to pick. And they're counting on you to help them pick the right one. Um, that's number one. Number two, I love, you know, I, I do exactly what you just said. And you reminded me, Mark, that I always start, I start with small wins. Because whenever I can get a small win, whether it's some suggestions you made, uh, whatever it may be, it, it just, you know, let's start with one small thing and, and see if that's successful. And it builds confidence, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Builds reassurance, builds confidence. It uh, it creates a co- you know creates a, a partnership because now you're getting their buy-in into working with you and and solving the problem together. So it's not just on your shoulders. Um, so it's about taking away the risk, and that's what you want to do when you get want to make the, give them the, the buying options or decisions. Lay out on the plate, you know, be creative, be innovative, as we talked about earlier. Um, show each outcome of each choice that they want to make, but don't give them a shopping list of 10 or 15 choices. Give them three. I, I work with a th- rule of three to five in my Magic life. number three, yeah. Yeah, I work with re- rule of three to five in my life, and nothing is ever more than three to five in anything. And usually I stay on the lower end, so I'll go three to four and say, here's the outcome of this, and here's the investment. Here's the outcome of this, here's the investment. Here are some of the risks, right? And I go in and I explain, and then they'll say, okay, those are the choices. And, I'll, and I, before they preempt me, I will say, here's the way I would rank them. This is the one I would go for, and this right. Is- so we can guide people on on why those options are right. Yeah, and I think it's worth uh, stressing here. People like choice. So to your point, and I completely agree. And, and there is research to prove this. When we give people too many options, let's say, well, you can get fifteen different ways we can train this. That's overwhelming. 
um, it's more confident when you can say one here, you know, three, three is a magic number options or three things we can do here. And here's how I would stack rank them. Um, but keeping in mind that although we don't want to overwhelm people with options, customers like options. They like feeling in control. So you could decide that the training will work this way, this way, or this way, but giving people options and some advice as to which options they might like to choose. People do like to choose. And I know that when people don't get options, it's easy to turn you down. But if you give them some options, it's easy to say yes to something you're offering them. I do have a little trick, though. It's not a secret, but I think people will realize this, but you have to be consciously aware of this. One is I work with two factors. One is their uh, financial constraints. Uh, I work within their budgets and make sure that we're not going to over expect or exceed that budget, um, that we work within that limits. And number two, their risk tolerance. Um, and those two things alone allow me to position the solutions to make them make their choice simpler. Because when I'm within those parameters, it's like the old salesperson would tell you, you always have to make them say yes, right? To get to the final decision. Yeah. And so this is like, if I take away the risk and the financial constraints, then there's really no constraints left except how do we do this? And so, you know, at the end of the day, that's really the, the old salesperson's trick to, to, to making people uh, connect. So I think for people listening, just remind yourself that Training doesn't happen until someone buys it. Training doesn't happen until someone chooses you over someone else, particularly if you're running your own consultancy, listening to us today, listening to AJ and myself. Um, think of what ways you can get people to say yes to something, uh, ideally from you. Uh, and just to recap, one, be innovative. Think of ways that separate you from the competition. How can you use technology differently? Um, how can you use a, a new approach maybe, as long as it's effective to make your training that much more compelling. To get them, a lot of people like novelty, not everyone likes novelty, but a lot of people like, you know, to buy training because we're not doing leadership training the way it's been done 5,000 times before. This person's different. What is that difference? Accentuate that. Number two, provide proof. Highlight how what you're selling them actually works, will get results. Um, and to AJ's point, think of those success stories that you've got. You know, what can we lean into in terms of achievements for other training clients? What are they said about your business? Number three, align with those business challenges. Show some interest, curiosity. Again, to AJ's point, think of the conversations you can have with people. Um, who are they? How can you prove operationally uh, that your training has an actual outcome that they need? Uh, number four, assurances. Which ways could you reduce the stress or what we call friction in buying such that when people read your training proposal, they say, you know, I, yeah, I could say yes to that part. The other part's a bit, um, premature or let's at least get this out of the way, get some quick wins, which kind of actually, if I'm thinking about this, um, links back to number two, having those, um, assurances also helps to ensure that when some quick win occurs, you can use this as proof that the rest of the training will work as well. And lastly, number five, give people quick buying options, which means give reduce the number of, of choices that people have to make so they can select you and work with you. Is there anything else I've forgotten or you'd like to add to that list? No, I, I, I just think you said something interesting in there that reminded me that um, don't be mechanical about it. Like all these five points are interrelated, right? But when I say don't be mechanical about it, 
tell a story. You said success stories earlier. And I think as a human species, we're ancestral in our evolution. We were handed down stories and we're, 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 um, our, our psychology is geared for stories. So when you build a story around what you want to provide them, I guarantee you, you will captivate them and practice that because stories are very powerful tools to get people to engage. Yeah. yeah and it's something I read recently is that, um, when we sell or tell facts, we're using two parts of the brain. When we're selling with stories and people can almost see in their mind the benefits of the training, what they, they'll be able to do and how their team and company will benefit from that. They're, they're using up to eight parts of the brain because they're thinking of feeling and, and sight and, and vision. And, uh, you know, it's Mark, much more word, compelling, isn't it? You, you know, my word that I use all the time, whether I'm speaking at a conference, and when I use examples or I'm selling to a client, I'll use the word imagine. And I'll say, okay, imagine with me. And, and right automatically when you say that word, your mind automatically, automatically subconsciously goes into the, the imagination. And you're, you're starting your brain automatically clicks to start putting the pieces as I'm speaking to you, putting the pieces in place. And, and, and building that picture, it builds that picture. And just that one word is so powerful um, that people are like, yeah, that's true. What if that can happen? Right. <laughs> so, and, and look, John Lennon, John Lennon said in his, in his, in his song, right. Imagine, you know, there's no heaven and imagine there's no war and imagine, and we're all sitting there listening to the song going, yeah, what if, right. <laughs> so it is a very powerful word to help you gain people's attention and engagement and actually possibly yeah, so get get customers to buy into the vision of the training. Imagine that six months from now, the training's been successful. What's happened? What's changed? What's new? What's different? Um, how have things improved? And that's a very powerful way to engage people. So, so in recap today, or for the last recap, we've covered five <laughs> points. Five points. We'll not go through them again. There are five ways we've given you them. Uh, AJ and I have given you those examples. Five ways to get customers to buy into your training. Be innovative. Provide proof. Align with business challenges, offer assurances, give quick buying options, and maybe point number six, courtesy of AJ, is is use that power of imagination. Tell that story, sell what stories, because facts tell, but stories sell. AJ, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Mark, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and to for your audience. Uh, please, everyone, if you would want to follow me on well, I don't know if Twitter is viable still anymore, but <laughs> what Elon Musk <laughs> bought it last night. That's right. <laughs> uh, I will be there for the time being. So you can find me at uh, Biz Learning Dude. That's B I Z or B I Z, as we say in Canada, Learning Dude, D U D E. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, under my name. I'm sure, Mark, you'll post my name there. I will, of course. I can give you the link. Yep. And um, of course, uh, either visit my site, centralknowledge.com, or visit me on a lot of the articles I write at elearningindustry.com or and other publications. Um, and it was truly a pleasure to be here with you uh, today. I really enjoyed our chat. Yeah. Maybe you might like to write an article for training business someday. We'll see what we'll, we'll, we'll I be. Would love to. We'll, I would love to. <laughs> we'll be in touch again. Thanks you so much, AJ. Cheers. Thank you, Mark. My thanks to AJ for being my guest today on the show. And of course, thanks to you for taking time 
to listen to another episode of the Training Business Podcast. If you've not yet subscribed, please click on subscribe now, whichever platform you're listening to the show on. It costs nothing and helps to spread the word. And it helps, of course, to raise the rankings of the show. And as you can imagine, uh, podcasting is quite a competitive activity. All kinds of great podcasts out there. I know that because I listen to them too. But your support of this one is particularly appreciated. If you've got ideas for the kinds of guests you'd like me to have on the show, the kinds of people that resonate with you, the kinds of people whose work or thought leadership impresses you, and you think that having them on the show could actually help other people in our community, the training business community, then please write to me. My email address is mark at trainingbusiness.com. I'd love to hear from you personally. I reply individually and I read all emails myself. So please let me know what you think will be helpful to you and to other listeners of the show. Until next Thursday, when of course there is another episode of the show waiting for you. Keep going, keep training, keep learning, keep growing and speak to you next week. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.